This is State of the Human, the podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project. Each episode, we take a common human experience, like teaching or breathing or joking, and bring you stories that deepen our understanding of that experience. My name is Max Du, and in the next few episodes, we're looking at the theme of reclaiming. Live long enough and everyone has this experience. Something you love changes. Your relationship with this thing or place or person becomes complicated. You might even feel the need to distance yourself from it completely. But true loves rarely disappear without a trace. Today's episode is the first in a series of episodes about reclaiming what's been lost. This series will feature stories about reclaiming neighborhoods, music venues, childhood obsessions, sports teams, languages, and ways of seeing ourselves. It's about holding the tension between what we were and who we've become. It's about returning to our origins, but this time with a much more nuanced perspective. We want to start today's episode with an old story. Gregory Potomkin was one of Empress Catherine the Great's lovers. As the story goes, Catherine asked Gregory to take her on a tour of Crimea. As they floated down the river, they passed pristine villages, townspeople waved to them next to milky white cows. The stretch of wealth and development seemed to go on forever. But if Catherine could have gotten off the boat and taken a closer look at the villages, she would have seen something rather disturbing. These villages were just wooden facades, complete with stand-in cattle and some of Potomkin's soldiers pretending to be townspeople. They'd wave at Catherine as she passed, pack up their set, and then move downriver to do the whole charade over again. This deception also had some other problematic layers, like the fact that the place they were touring was war-torn Crimea which had been conquered by Russia and stolen from the Ottoman Empire. The facade covered a landscape devastated by colonization that hadn't been rebuilt because Gregory and his army ran out of money. Over the centuries, scholars have concluded that this story about Gregory Potomkin and Catherine the Great is fable, not fact. The whole charade was just that, a pretend story to illustrate a point. Even so, the term Potomkin village outlasted the mythology. It's a term used to describe a situation where an undesirable reality is hidden behind an impressive facade. So what does this have to do with reclaiming? Today's story is about a modern-day Potomkin village, one that we're so used to seeing that we sometimes forget it's a facade. Here's Leah Chase with that story. Everyone has a different idea of what Little Tokyo is. A themed shopping mall, a dining experience, a cheaper trip to Japan. For me, Little Tokyo was the answer to a question I had been asking myself ever since I can remember. Who am I? As a child, the neighborhood was an immersive experience. Every sight, sound, and taste a peek into my cultural heritage. Generations of Japanese Americans had lived here since the first boarding house opened in the 1880s. Every sidewalk was embedded with the shape of my ancestors. I felt them like phantom limbs as if our feet were leaving the same footprints only 100 years apart. But there's only so much I could learn from the past. I wanted to see my culture alive and breathing. I wanted something real. As the name implies, Little Tokyo is quite, well, little. It's one of the many dense urban neighborhoods in downtown LA, just five city blocks for a population just shy of 3,000. 
There's First Street, where the restaurants are packed wall to wall and the glass storefronts are plastered over with a collage of print ads and flyers. Being a culinary fad, ramen is a bit pricey, but the lesser-known katsudon goes for 10 bucks a bowl. The street performer plays the shamisen on the corner of First and San Pedro through a loudspeaker. Every 20 minutes, the metro delivers passengers to Union Station, where they're funneled into the churning crowds of tourists, tenants, business owners, civil servants, and social workers. One giant stream winding through an outdoor mall designed to look like an old Japanese village. Traffic swirls around them while navigating the perpetual detours and constructions. The jackhammer becomes the loudest noise in the neighborhood. Buildings are felled and resurrected, the new replacing the old, constantly improving and updating 100 years of development, culminating in the saddest silence you will ever hear. Because little Tokyo, as we know it, is disappearing. At one point, there were 43 Japantowns in California. Now, there are only three in the entire country. San Francisco, San Jose, Los Angeles, these are the final holdouts of Japanese-American culture. The land is caught in a decades-long game of -of tug-of-war, changing hands between local tenants, city governments, private investors, wealthy developers, and overseas corporations. Year by year, decade by decade, our community finds the land slipping out of our control and into the hands of big business. How did Little Tokyo go from a small immigrant community to a tourist trap? What changed? In this episode, I'll introduce you to a couple Little Tokyo natives, folks whose families have lived here since the Second World War. Think of it as a kind of walking tour of the neighborhood through the eyes of a local. You may be familiar with the shining displays and inviting storefronts, but take a peek inside and you might find something a little different, a little darker. Through the local stories, you'll hear about three main threats to Little Tokyo. The disappearance of affordable housing, the rise of tourism, and the presence of police, and how these things are threatening our way of life. This podcast is about one community's struggle for survival and the ways in which historical development has both fractured and solidified its people. For some, home is just a bed one sleeps in. For us, home is Little Tokyo. When I was a kid, I used to resign myself to this terrible fate that the neighborhood's disappearance was inevitable. Look, Little Tokyo's already gentrified. There's no point in trying to do anything about it now. At this point, it's mostly cheap trinkets and Hello Kitty and anime. I mean, I don't even like anime and God, there is nothing to do here. Maybe for a tourist, but not for me. And that's when it hit me. This place, which I had always considered my home, it wasn't for me. Not anymore. I was born after most of the land had been bought by big corporations, after the luxury apartments had been built and the old hotels demolished, after everyone had already moved out. I never got to connect with Little Tokyo because, well, it was mostly gone. I think gentrification in Little Tokyo affects me in a lot of ways because... I have such a strong connection to Little Tokyo. I feel like it's a lot of my identity growing up there, and then I see it disappearing. 
This is Zen Sekizawa. Her family has been active in Little Tokyo for almost 75 years. Her grandparents were the first to come to LA after their release from the camps, where they opened the Atomic Cafe in 1946. From the pictures I can find online, it looks like the typical 50s diner with red leather booths and wood veneer tabletops. But that classic setting is not what most people remember. Ask anyone from Little Tokyo and they'll tell you about the band posters covering every inch of the walls, punk records blasting from the jukebox, the artists, punks, and weirdos who came for refuge and ramen, and of course, Atomic Nancy, the misfit ringleader of the whole circus. Former patrons know Nancy as that girl who jumped across the tables and roller skates or played a mix of old rock and new wave punk from her father's 45s. Zen knows her as mom. It's because of Nancy that Zen holds community in high regard. But the Atomic couldn't last forever. In 1989, it closed for good. My grandparents were old and tired, and my mom didn't want to take it over. And I think also there was some issues with the building that they just didn't want to fix. It seems like that happens quite a bit, where that'll be the nail in the coffin for a lot of businesses. In 2014, the city decided to demolish the old brick building that housed the Atomic Cafe. Their plan was to build a new metro station, which would connect Little Tokyo to the entire county. Passengers from all over LA could board a train and be delivered straight to Little Tokyo's doorstep foot traffic was expected to increase tenfold. Like sharks smelling blood in distant waters, private investors would follow the scent of tourism in the hopes of making their biggest catch yet. But what does tourism really do for a community? It's easy to see how tourism has impacted the physical growth of the environment. The buildings appear more fortified, less blighted, because there is enough money to refurbish them. There is a bustling commercial scene that hasn't been seen in decades. From visual evidence alone, tourism looks like a good thing. But that colorful facade pales in comparison to the loss it has left in its wake. I mean, gentrification in Little Tokyo is running rampant at this point. You know, we have the regional connector coming in. We have most of the property owned by outside corporations. Japanese village plaza is owned by public storage. And that's where Mokiobi is. Mokiobi is a clothing and accessories company founded in 2006. 15 years later, it opened its flagship store right in the heart of Little Tokyo. Its products are an explosion of pop art, geometric confetti with cute cartoon rainbows and strawberries and cheesy slogans all oriented around the company's name, which means Thursday in Japanese. On the surface, Mokuyobi seems like any other Japanese store in Little Tokyo. The problem is, the people behind the brand are white. Most people thought they were Japanese. If you have a store that is a Japanese word, and you sell things in a Japanese language, then people are going to think you're Japanese. The community feared Mokuyobi was appropriating Japanese words and images to cash in on the tourist craze. So, they took to Instagram, urging Mokuyobi to reconsider their branding or else leave Little Tokyo altogether. Locals had no interest in $300 backpacks with Mount Fuji or the rising sun on them. Most locals couldn't even afford them. The company, they realized, 
were marketing to an entirely different demographic. Yeah, Mogiobi's for tourists. Like, why are you coming into Little Tokyo? Do you understand this community? Do you understand the history? How do you identify with it? Some people pointed out that tourism would push commercial rent too high and price out family businesses that couldn't compete with the new, flashy, and expensive boutiques. Many beloved businesses had already been struck down by COVID. For every vacant lot that popped up on the market, another mokuyobi was sure to take it. All of these really generous, educated comments were completely deleted and erased and replied with like really antagonistic things like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not true. Sorry you feel that way. And I think a lot of folks were upset. You set up in a community and then you silence them and then you profit off of them. Like how do you even connect to little Tokyo that you can't even identify with? That's totally on purpose. But the worst part about this story is that there are a lot of people in the community who don't see it being a problem. When white people pretend to be Japanese and extract profit from your community by doing that. I really thought it was like a slam dunk, like f***ing Mokiobi. I'm like, oh my God, this community is going to just rally against this really terrible apparent thing. And it was really eye-opening to see how far some folks in this community have lost their sense of identity. I want people to understand that gentrification isn't a good thing. Like, if you think that it's going to benefit you, it's not. Not in the long run. The gentrifiers eventually get gentrified. You know, you go through different ways of gentrification, and that's what destroys a community. It's like Orientalist fantasies. Um, you have to dig pretty deep to find the soul of little Tokyo right now. I think people have different ideas about gentrification because there are people who genuinely feel like it is good. The business improvement district, the business associations, their only interest is bringing in money. It's not bringing in people. They want Little Tokyo to be more attractive to tourism and they want the property value to go up at the cost of people not being able to afford to live here, or even at the cost of its own legacy businesses. This is Philip Hirose. He and his family are the proprietors of the Oregon Hotel, one of the last residential hotels in Little Tokyo. And it's been in their hands for almost 70 years. It's a small, three-story building with about 15 to 20 rooms. There's a quaint hole-in-the-wall restaurant with an open kitchen on the first floor. Just down the block is Anzen Hardware, a supply store that's been in his mother's family since 1946. But what's special about the hotel is the price. The Hirose's rent rooms below market rates so that people can afford to live close to their community even as property taxes and new developments swallow up the land around them. It started because my grandfather, he had a property, and that's kind of how the hotel supply business started because when a lot of Japanese Americans came back from the war, they could not simply move into the homes that they used to live in. So they would live in these hotels. And so he would provide 
like the linens, the chemical cleaning supplies, the toilet paper and whatnot. When he passed away, my mom and my aunt inherited it. The spirit is that it is a way for people to live affordably in close proximity to where they work in. Philip may not have grown up in Little Tokyo proper, but it's still his home in every sense of the word. Now, that home is in danger. Private developers have their eyes on old properties like the Oregon Hotel. They're playing the long game, waiting until families like the Hiroses fold under the pressure of rent and repairs. And then, they strike. Around 2016, there was an offer to purchase the building by the developer that is now our neighbor. Their ideal plan is to just buy everyone out and build whatever they can and maximize profits. That developer is Ato. It's a small branch of Etco Homes, a luxury development company based in Beverly Hills. Most of their past projects are in West Hollywood. You know, where Sunset Boulevard and the Chateau Marmont are. But my grandfather, he declined. I think he understood that it will be a cultural loss if we were to sell the building. The reality is that because of the rising market value of the area, our property taxes are going up. So it's making it more and more difficult to keep the rent low. Philip's grandfather may not have sold the hotel, but he couldn't stop Otto from buying another lot in Little Tokyo. They're currently building 77 units directly behind the Oregon. It's still too early for its market debut, but pre-sale prices go as high as $1 million. This is how the neighborhood is disappearing. Just as tourism attracts more expensive businesses, so do richer customers attract more expensive housing. It's essentially one big feedback loop. Money bringing more money, bringing more money. And there's only so much one family can do about it. They're moving into a thriving community that has a lot of work to do. I would only hope that they would spend time learning about the community. Um, I would hope that they would learn about its struggle for existence. And that struggle very much exists to this day. For now, the Hiroses hold on to their roots. In 2019, they opened a new restaurant on the first floor of the Oregon Hotel. It's called Aze. The menu is a mix of Japanese and French food, an ode to his father's time training as a chef in Aze Les Rideaux. Philip sees the place as the first step toward rebuilding a true Japanese-American community in Little Tokyo. Here, it kind of felt like a homecoming of sorts. A lot of our friends are closer. My mom works right down the street, so in that way, it's very convenient. It may come at a like, cost of buying this like suburban home or whatever. But I feel like the restaurant's opening was my family's recommitment to the neighborhood. The assumption is that there would be a lot of Japanese-Americans that live in Little Tokyo, but Historically, I think when there was this flight to the suburbs, that's when a lot of people moved, moved out. That was a huge loss. I didn't live in Little Tokyo growing up, so like I am very much a product of that. But I think the question is more about like what can we do to reinvest in it? And what can we do to make it even a reality if we wanted to move back to Little Tokyo? I've often fantasized about living in Little Tokyo, sharing the streets with people who look like me, 
sitting down for lunch at Suehiro Cafe and dinner at Hachioji, buying groceries from Nijia Market, attending service at Koyasan Betsuin, that tiny Buddhist temple on First Street. Everything I could ever need or want in just five city blocks. Having gotten to know Zen and Philip, I feel an overwhelming sense of familiarity. Their thoughts and words mirror my own, their experiences so like mine and yet so different, like variations on a theme. With them, I feel welcome, understood even. I want a safe space for cultural and political self-expression. I want community. But with all the tourism and new development, the question now is, does that community even exist? Los Angeles is a city of promises, we say. Yet all around us are patches of ugly blight and decay. Ghettos, ruined neighborhoods. Can we do anything about it? Blight, decay, destruction of lifestyle, pollution, noise, creeping ugliness. The city planning department must be concerned with all these problems and their solutions. It involves the physical, economic, and social development of the city. Kuriumi Plaza was originally built in 2010 and designated as a community park in 2012. Back then, it was a small, open space with adolescent trees planted in grassy troughs, sleek metal awnings to protect against heavy rain in the winter and harsh sun in the summer, and benches for people to rest. At night, dozens of tiny lights emit a soft glow around the plaza's perimeter, a beacon of quiet meditation in a sleepless city. But when COVID hit, All that changed. People lost their jobs, their homes, in some cases their loved ones, their support systems. One by one, tents popped up in Toriumi Plaza, and a small community of unhoused folks was born. Community organizers gathered at the site of the latest homeless encampment that city officials are clearing out right now. It's at the Toriumi Plaza here at the corner of First and Judge John Aiso Streets in Little Tokyo. Now, however, advocacy groups for the homeless community argue that this is really the wrong tactic when it comes to tackling such a huge problem. They demand the city keep this area open, give them permanent housing and services, proposing the city uses the more than $1 billion that's spent on policing for the unhoused instead. Surrounding business owners, however, describe a crime-infested atmosphere that hurts everyone. It will be closed at midnight, and at that time, anyone remaining inside those barricades must be out. In February 2022, Little Tokyo business owners drafted a letter to city council, urging them to clear the encampment out of Toriumi Plaza. In their letter, they cited issues of drug use, prostitution, and public urination. 43 businesses signed the letter. Less than a month later, the encampment was picked clean, its tents broken down, and its residents scattered to different shelters across L.A. This, of course, wasn't the first time something like this had happened. The Little Tokyo business community and the unhoused folks had been in conflict for as long as anyone could remember. Business owners feared the unhoused would vandalize their stores or harass their customers and were quick to call the cops in uncomfortable situations. Arrests were made. Sometimes things got violent. But how much of this fear is actually based in reality? And how much of it is unfair stereotyping? I definitely think unhoused people are members of Little Tokyo. They chose to be here. 
you know, they chose to, for whatever reasons, to try to survive in this community. People are just trying to survive in any way they can. And they're being pushed to a very desperate point in their lives where they have to do these things that could very well end up, you know, put them in jail. If you criminalize someone and then they have a record, then they can't get a job, they can't get a house, then they're on the street. And then you call the police because they're on the street. It's just a vicious cycle. They see the solution to providing a safer community is with increased surveillance, policing, but not providing wraparound services, not providing housing, or just the support that they would give anybody else. So that comes at the cost of community gardens, of public water fountains, public bathrooms, benches that lay flat, intentional design to not attract transients, as they would say. Someone needed to take action against market rate housing, against tourism, against policing, against everything. Little Tokyo had fallen too deep into money and bureaucracy to remember who they were a small, historic community who had each other's backs before anyone else. So Zen took a stand. I started to get into organizing against gentrification with Defend Boyle Heights. I had been recently illegally evicted and needed to understand what the hell happened. This was probably eight years ago, you know. We befriended an unhoused man, Theo Henderson, and he was being targeted by the Chinatown BID. And we helped him in any way we could and supported him in any way we possibly could. So fast forward to early pandemic, the encampment in Toriyumi Plaza popped up and we thought, oh, what should we do about this? So Theo and I and my partner Mario and a few other folks were like, let's start a mutual aid for the folks at Toriyumi Plaza. And that's what happened. So we started JAS, J-Town Action and Solidarity. And yeah, we've been doing it for, it's been like 79 weeks in a row now. Every Saturday, Jazz sets up tables outside Toriyumi Plaza, where they provide hot meals, water, masks, COVID tests, Narcan, and other essential items. Together, Jazz and the unhoused community grow vegetables and herbs in a small community garden. There is music, dancing, poetry readings, and community meetings where unhoused folks can voice their concerns. It's a place like no other in Little Tokyo. And Zen is not alone in the struggle. Jazz has brought many corners of the Little Tokyo and broader Japanese-American community together to fight gentrification and solidarity. Philip is also deeply involved with Jazz and its mission. Only, he comes from the business side of things. It started with friends. That's the core of mutual aid. That's the core of abolition. I think with this new restaurant and with me being a little more involved, I wanted to see how we could be more involved in community work other than being at strictly food events. We don't have a lot of money, like a lot of foundations, but we have umbrellas and tables and chairs and an ice maker. 
I think Little Tokyo's always been a combination of lots of things. There are people in the community who want to see it be a tourist trap, but there are people in the community who want to see Little Tokyo as a self-determining community that is not rooted in violence. I feel like ultimately it comes down to the messiness of politics and what people value. The question is, who is a stakeholder in the community? How is the community represented? Usually it, it is with politicians. It is with big business. It is with spiritual leaders. It is never the houseless residents. And it's never the people who work service-based jobs in the community. There are so many people whose voice isn't accounted for during these decision-making processes. There were several waves, and there currently is, and there forever will be, waves of gentrification, whether it be internment, whether it be the imminent domain through the city, whether it be the displacement of the Black community here after the war. Now it's the housing crisis. But I think the question is more about, like, what are they going to do now? I think we can save little Tokyo. I think it's just going to take a lot of fighting for it, right? A lot of people want to fight for it. I get so much hope with jazz. People really identify with little Tokyo, identify with being Asian in America, you know, identify with all the struggles that are happening citywide and also in little Tokyo and are fighting for that identity. We're all tied into capitalism and imperialism right now. I mean, that's unfortunately where we are. But to acknowledge the ways we are tied to it, complacent about it, and do something about it, and organize against those forces, I think that's what I would say. Yeah, don't f with little Tokyo. I remember my mom taking me to this one museum every single time we went to Little Tokyo. It's supposed to be a testament to the broader Japanese-American experience, but all I remember from that place are exhibits about the camps. Walking through reconstructed barracks, reading old diary entries and letters from the incarcerated, peering at rusty fob watches and tattered books through a glass case. All these things were just relics of our shared trauma, injustice, and displacement. I defined myself by the past because I believed it was the only part of Japanese-American culture left. I figured the rest vanished once gentrification came knocking. But lately, I've begun to reconsider. Is that all I am? A sad story? A living relic? We have a right to preserve our past, but what about our present? Our future? Where is the little Tokyo of the past with its pool halls and bathhouses and farmer's markets? In those public communal spaces, culture was born out of solidarity and interdependence. It lived in the people and magnetized the bonds that held us close. But as our neighborhood becomes increasingly privatized and profit-driven, those bonds lose their charge. We begin to isolate ourselves from each other. Culture becomes symbolic. We displace our heritage onto the dead and inanimate. An exhibit, a meal, a product. But groups like Jazz give me hope. The old little Tokyo may be gone, but the people are still here, and they're fighting to stay. This is the Japanese-American community I've been looking for, 
one that puts people over profit. This is my identity, and to save it, we must change the way we think about our relationship to land, history, and culture. Gentrification demands we buy our culture. Community allows us to experience it. That story was produced by Leah Chase. You'll hear more stories of reclaiming what's been lost in upcoming episodes. You've been listening to State of the Human, the podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project. This episode was produced by Leah Chase and me, Max Du, with support from Laura Joyce Davis, Don Frazier, Megan Kalfas, Melissa Deardall, and Jonah Willingans. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, the Program in Writing and Rhetoric, the Office of the Vice President for the Arts, and Bruce Braden. You can learn about the Stanford Storytelling Project and our podcasts, workshops, live events, and courses at storytelling.stanford.edu. You can find this and every episode of State of the Human on our website or anywhere you listen to podcasts. For State of the Human and the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Max Dew.